what I know how to do well is follow an information trail. And that's usually where people get tripped up. They just sort of don't go far enough. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Coming out of the holidays, I've been thinking a lot about stories. We tell ourselves stories. We tell one another stories. We tell stories to entertain, to educate, to enlighten, to indoctrinate. Some stories are heartwarming. Some are designed to dissemble, others to hurt. All seek to connect someone to something in some way. Today, we're talking with someone who does just that. Jennifer Mendelssohn is a storyteller, and perhaps more accurately, a story rediscoverer. When we first met, she was a young writer, hard at work at Time Life Books, and as a freelance journalist. Every year, we celebrate the anniversary of her first byline. She wrote eloquently and with sly wit for Slate, for People Magazine, and countless others. And then, somehow, she got hooked on genealogy. Longtime listeners will recognize Jennifer as the intrepid and much-loved genealogist who figured out what became of my husband's long-lost grandfather, the nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn who joined the army and ended up in Paducah, Kentucky. There's some chance you might know her from her Twitter fame with hashtag resistance genealogy when she took on the hateful anti-immigration storytellers by digging up their own family tales of immigration and struggle. She wasn't trying to shame anyone, just reminding folks that we're a nation of mostly immigrants, our stories more intertwined with much more in common than some might like to admit. Now, Jennifer specializes in helping Eastern European Jewish families shattered by the Holocaust in reclaiming their story, reuniting people not only with one another, but with their own stories as well. She's furthered those efforts as co-founder of the DNA Reunion Project at the Center for Jewish History, information and links on my website. Jennifer is, as she puts it, endlessly fascinated by people and their stories. In the land of curiosity types, she has what we call social curiosity, an interest in how other people think, feel, and behave, with a good dose of deprivation sensitivity, a burning desire to solve mysteries. Jen is particularly adept with truth-seeking tools at leveraging her curiosity to bring forward stories that might otherwise be lost. When she called me on the heels of a recent episode with her curiosity analogy and a juicy curiosity practice, I wondered what I had been waiting for to have her join me for a conversation about curiosity and the stories we tell ourselves and others. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Oh, me too. It feels like ah, this was destined. So first, we have to share with people the curiosity practice that you shared with me that was sort of the trigger for this whole conversation. Sure. We were talking about a practice I've had for a long time, going back to my days as a journalist. And I feel like when you tell stories in journalism, you know, there's a sort of old advice that people use about always show, don't tell. And when I think about how that 
sort of comes into practice when you're writing a story, you think about the ways to convey to your reader, you know, who somebody is or what makes them interesting. And you never just want to say, you know, she was lazy or she was forgetful. You always want a good story about the time that she made her three-year-old make Thanksgiving dinner because she wouldn't get off the couch or whatever. So I do that in practice when I am out and about in the world. And let's say I'm like waiting in line at the post office and I get a vibe off the person in front of me. I think, oh, that woman's clearly very wealthy. And then I think, well, what made me say that? And I always make myself sort of go head to toe and figure out the details that made me come to that conclusion. Well, I think she's wealthy because, you know, she has a Rolex watch and her nails are perfectly manicured or she's carrying a beautiful leather computer case or something like that. Or I think, oh, that person looks troubled what gave me that feeling? And I sort of make myself go through the practice of sort of checking off the list. What are the details that in my head added up to troubled or wealthy or unwell or because those are the details when you write a story that you don't want to include you. I'm sorry that you do want to include. You don't just want to say, you know, oh, she was a wealthy woman. You want to describe the woman with her perfectly manicured nails and her Hermes computer bag or whatever. That's a little fun game I play in public. I loved that when you when you first described this to me, you described it as what you thought of as a journalism practice. You hadn't really thought of it as a curiosity in practice. And it made me think, wow, does she have other journalism practices that I should know about? <laughs> well, you know, as I was thinking about this conversation, it's so interesting because you've spoken to people sort of across the spectrum of all sorts of fields, but clearly I'm biased. But I feel like journalism, and especially the kind of feature journalism that I did for years and years, is sort of the ultimate curiosity exercise, because all I ever did was drop down into other people's worlds and tell their stories and then get out and the next week or the next month or whatever, drop down in somebody else's world. And that to me was the most satisfying and exciting professional life that anyone could have. You know, I was sort of the ultimate voyeur, not in a creepy way, but just I, because I have for as long as I can remember, just always been endlessly curious about other people. How do they live? What do they think? How do they feel? What do their houses look like? It's bringing to mind, there's a great line in uh, one of my favorite books, Michael Chabon's debut novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, where he talks about the, one of the characters, it's not the most savory reference, is unfortunately like working for the mob and collecting, um, you know, going door to door, collecting money owed. But what Shabon writes about is sort of this fantasy of being a child and all he ever wanted to do was sort of look in other people's houses at dinner time and just sort of see what was going on in other people's houses and imagining, you know, what their dinner tables look like, what their living rooms look like. And I just completely related to that. You know, I just was always, always curious about the world around me, people around me. And I just sort of wanted to get in there and see other people's lives and what they were like. That's so interesting because I've been you know, reading and and thinking about this topic as well. And I, I came across some work on narrative psychology, which is an 
area of psychology that sort of concerns itself with the storied nature of human conduct. That it's not just that we tell stories, but stories tell us, and that the stories shape us. They they shape what we think of other people, obviously, independent of maybe a personal experience there. But that work also has something called the master narrative. So narrative psychology and the master narrative, which is like the big story, right? The kind of ubiquitous, sort of rigid, often unseen story around us. Politicians, for instance, make use of this master narrative kind of strategically. And I've been thinking that a lot of your work, especially kind of the evolution of your work towards the genealogy and the truth-telling around the Holocaust experience is a way of disrupting some of a master narrative or establishing a new one. Do you think of it that way? Absolutely. I have found over and over and over again how the world of genealogy is rife with people disrupting their master narrative, whether it's through finding documents that change a previously accepted story. In my own family, I think about, you know, my my grandfather would always tell us this story about how his his older sister had been promised in marriage to their first cousin in return for being brought over to the US by their uncle. And, you know, it, it she wasn't particularly happy about marrying the first cousin, but then tragically she died a week before the wedding. And my brother, Daniel, who was sort of the original genealogist in the family, when he started digging into this, he he couldn't find her death certificate and didn't know why. And on a whim, he searched for her under what would have been her married name. And he he found it and then found her marriage certificate at which my grandfather was the witness. So, you know, this narrative of her dying a week before the wedding, you know, was not exactly true. And in retrospect, there was some thought that they may have just for various you know logistical reasons had a civil marriage but hadn't yet had the religious marriage but still it sort of changed the story you know or i think about you know your husband asked me to answer what i thought was a very simple question he said his grandfather had arrived at Ellis Island as a little boy with his widowed mother david's great grandmother and david was curious who had met them at Ellis Island? And I thought, oh, well, you know, that's 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 an easy one to answer. But it got complicated because when I found David's great-grandmother and his grandfather's little boy arriving at Ellis Island, they were met by her husband and his father, <laughs> who was very much still alive. And I began to look into that story. But again, it, it changes the narrative. There's an entire book by Libby Copeland about people who took DNA tests and discovered truths about themselves that were completely different than the stories they had begun to tell themselves or had been told their entire lives. So you know, I find that in genealogy, there are many, many opportunities to, I was going to say to disrupt the narrative. It's both a willing disruption of the narrative. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with the stories they've been told and they they sort of want to know the true story. 
And sometimes it's a complete blindsiding, like people discover things accidentally that completely change their worlds. You know, people discover that, for instance, they're not the ethnicity that they thought they were. How does that change your notion of who you are and how you navigate the universe when you grow up thinking one thing and suddenly you learn something different? You know, I... I can think of many, many examples, and it's fascinating. And in the case of the Holocaust, it can be very, very healing to sort of get your story back. And that's actually one of the things that I find really interesting about your work is, in contrast to the privilege of my family's story, where I come out of a Quaker tradition and we haven't had anything remotely like the Holocaust and as a tradition, we're really good at documentation. So, so it's, I have easy access to that information. But when you don't have easy access to that information and other people are even trying to deny what little bits of the story you do know, that's got profound effects as well, right? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you have a better sense about that than probably many, many people on the planet. Well, I think it's sort of, it is hard to convey to people who don't have a firsthand experience of Holocaust loss in their family to sort of conceptualize how it feels. And unfortunately, I do have that firsthand experience, actually most notably probably through my husband's family because his direct ancestors were involved. My, my mother-in-law was born during the war when uh, her Polish Jewish parents had fled east to, to survive. And when they returned to their town of origin, both of her parents' entire families had been wiped out, you know, parents, siblings, and I always say, you know, 99% of the aunts, uncles, cousins, there simply was no family. And so my mother-in-law grew up. She never had an aunt, an uncle, a first cousin. She had a couple of distant relatives, but it's just a very, very different conception of family. And what we are able to do in the DNA Reunion Project is both, it's twofold, we can use DNA to locate relatives who, in many cases, we find people survived in far-flung places and there was no way to communicate back to their families that they had survived. I mean, there were sort of meager means for people would write to the Red Cross or whatever, but it was very, very rudimentary and people slipped through the cracks all the time. But the second piece of that, that is we do a lot of dramatic, beautiful reunions. One of our uh, the people we helped said it was like a cousin fell out of the sky. But I feel like just as important, but not quite as sexy or dramatic, one of the things that got lost in the Holocaust that people don't talk about is actually family history as well. You know, because we helped a, a survivor in the DC area whose whose father tested through our program. And, you know, he he I believe was a sole survivor. He lost his parents, he lost a lot of relatives. 
so these people survived. They they went wherever they went, whether it was Israel, the U.S., or Australia, or wherever they landed, and were in a struggle to survive after this incredibly traumatic experience. I think doing genealogy gets very low down on the priority list, meaning not only did they lose their known living family members, but they lost their entire history because nobody like was then going to do a family tree. You couldn't, you didn't have a grandma that you could ask all the questions that those of us with living grandparents could ask. So in this case, we helped this woman and through a partnership we have with JRI Poland, which has millions and millions of Polish Jewish records. The first thing we did for her was we found her murdered grandparents' marriage record and sent it to her. And she was like beside herself just to sort of see and learn their parents' names. And like, we really can connect people back to their history. And I feel like that's so important and so empowering. So it's a really beautiful process to sort of be a part of and be able to reconnect these people who lost so much. I, I often use the, the, the phrase reclaiming your story because I feel like those people have a right to know their story and that's what we do. Talk, if you would, a little bit about the DNA Reunion Project. Kind of give us some context on this. Sure. Well, one of the things I have learned in specializing in Ashkenazi genealogy and especially in the Holocaust is that unfortunately the Holocaust created many situations where the paper trail was disrupted for people. There were children who were hidden, who didn't know who their families of origins were. There were relatives who were separated from one another. And I've learned over the years that DNA can be an especially powerful tool in situations like that because it can immediately connect people who are related. So my partner, Dr. Adina Newman, and I uh, decided that there should be a formal way to help survivors leverage the power of DNA. So we partnered with the Center for Jewish History at the end of November 2022, and we launched a program that we call the DNA Reunion Project at the Center for Jewish History. And it provides free DNA testing to any Holocaust survivor or their child who wants it. And then it makes us available for consulting where necessary and we've solved a number of cases of unknown identity. And we've also just helped countless survivors, you know, rebuild their trees, connect with relatives that they didn't know about, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been really, really rewarding. So a lot of what you do is actually a little bit technical, (laughs) takes your expertise, but are there curiosity practices that you use that a lay person could be using to reclaim those stories either in the case of family members who are gone or maybe family members who still survive and capturing those stories before they slip away? Well, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but what comes to mind is something I talk about all the time when I lecture about best practice in genealogy. And I, I never thought about it once again as a curiosity practice, but I guess it is. And that's, I always say that doing good genealogy is like an episode of Law and Order. You just have to follow the bong bongs, or I usually call them the dun duns, meaning I'm sure everyone has seen an episode of Law and Order, and it usually opens with a dead body. And people are like, well, how did this dead body get here? And there's an address. 
So the police start at that address and they speak to someone and they say, oh yeah, you know, he, he used to work with us, the dead guy, but he doesn't, he doesn't work with us anymore. He had just switched jobs and now he works at the slide I always use is it's called Sharp Data Systems and there's an address and you hear bong bong and <laughs> you got to go to Sharp Data Systems and talk to the people at Sharp Data Systems. And then the person at Sharp Data Systems says he was having a fight with his ex-girlfriend. You know, she lives at 270. West 26th Street, bong bong, you know, you go to 217. It's, it's, it's not surprising to me that uh, the, the shift from genealogy from journalism was very seamless to me, because I feel like what I know how to do well is follow an information trail. And that's usually where people get tripped up. They just sort of don't go far enough. And I feel like that's all I do all day long is I follow the dun-duns to where their logical conclusion is. And if you, you know, people always come to me like, our name was changed somewhere along the line and I don't know how to figure it out. Well, you can, you just have to be methodical and follow those dun-duns where they lead and you'll get your answer. Or, you know, we don't know anything about my great-grandmother. She, she was a mystery. Well, there's always something. There's always some glimmer of information that can get you started. And I guess the other piece of that is people get sort of overwhelmed and they think, how do I possibly find one Abraham Goldstein in Detroit? But I always tell people, you probably know more than you realize. And it's it's often a question of searching. You, you have to find the net that will catch your informational fish. And that's where people fall down. They don't know how to, to find that net. And what I have learned in decades of journalism that I now use as a genealogist are sort of the tricks to make the net filter out the information that you're looking for. You, you know that in census records, he probably said he was born in Russia. You probably have like a 20 or 30 year age span, things like that. And that can all be used to land on the right person and it's not magic what we do as genealogists, but people often, people always say the, sometimes I dig out information and people joke like you're a witch, but it really, it's not magical. It's not mystical. It's, and it can be taught really. So, so that's, that's kind of how I approach it. And I think why I am successful is just by being persistent and digging out, you know, following the dun-duns and getting to the bottom of the story, which is something I've done my entire career. So I can't let you get away without asking you to bust your favorite, least favorite, <clears throat> odious genealogy myth. Well, there are so many, but we know which one tops my list. There is a very, very, very widespread myth amongst descendants of immigrants that their names were changed at Ellis Island. And the story usually goes very similar to the sort of iconic scene in The Godfather Part Two, 
where little Vito Andalini from the town of Corleone arrives at Ellis Island by himself. And he's asked by an imperious immigration agent what his name is, and he doesn't answer. And they sort of look at the tag on him, and it says he's from the town of Corleone. And somebody writes down Vito Corleone, which of course becomes his name from, from that day forward. Well, immigration officers at Ellis Island didn't write anything down. They merely checked people's names off against a manifest that was prepared at boarding in Europe. They just confirmed that you were the person on the manifest. You were free to walk out of Ellis Island and call yourself anything. You weren't given any paperwork. You were never later asked what name you left Ellis Island with. And I have time and time and time and time again walked people through the process when they claim my ancestor's name was changed at Ellis Island. It is, I'd say I have like a 95% success rate in finding concrete documentation that shows that the name that was supposedly changed at Ellis Island continued to be used after Ellis Island. The name immigrants changed their own names. Nobody at Ellis Island ever foisted a new name on anyone. It's been disproved by a million immigration historians. And, but, but the, you know, you talk about narratives defining people, the pushback you get when you try to tell this to people, it's, it's people cling to it with a ferocious tenacity, but, but it's one of many genealogy myths. It's not the only one. There's, there's many similar ones. They're very, very hard to root out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to the point of, you know, we tell ourselves these stories and we get very attached to them. We define ourselves that way, et cetera, et cetera. So before I let you go, you know, this is coming. I have my big jar of wannabe analogies here. Um, so you know how this works. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. Okay. Yours is candlelight. How is curiosity like candlelight? Mine is houseplants, and I have one for the audience. So do you want to go first, or do you want me to go? I can go. Okay. I think curiosity is like candlelight, because curiosity can illuminate darkness. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you might be in the dark about information that you want or need, And curiosity, like candles, can light the way and open up, you know, shed light upon the darkness. Nice. Lovely. Lovely, lovely. Uh, So houseplants. How is curiosity like houseplants? Well, houseplants come in a lot of shapes and sizes. um, And they don't survive without a little attention. And I think curiosity is the same way. It won't survive without a little bit of you know water and sunshine and a little bit of TLC it doesn't take much, um, but but if you give them that, they really add something special to your environment. So I'll say that's how curiosity is like a houseplant. And audience, yours is clock. How is curiosity like a clock? Let me know on social media hashtag analogy. Well, Jen, thank you so much for this. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton, your host. Thanks for joining us today. 
You can find all of my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to Be Curious, where you can send us your clock analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my delightful guest and dear friend, Jennifer Mendelson. Links to her wonderful work on my website. I hope you'll pass along information about the DNA Reunion Project to someone who might need it. The clock is ticking. Find it and the Center for Jewish History online at cjh.org. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music, Homegrown by the Pine Barrens via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. You didn't like hearing that journalism is the ultimate curiosity practice? <laughs> I really believe that. I just feel like my entire life, I've just been endlessly curious about other people and always wanted to tell other people's stories. That's just what it's all about. <laughs>